the message this morning during this Advent season is is one I think to to those of us who whether or not we want to admit, admit it out loud and we probably don't and we probably haven't but let this just be a pressure release message for you it's a message to those of us who we're doubting we're doubting we're going through a time of of, of doubting uh, Jesus, I thought you were this kind of king, but it doesn't seem that you are that way. Maybe our faith is is being challenged. Maybe it's crumbling. It's almost certainly because of some sort of time of pain or trial or suffering that we have gone through or are going through, a loss, a stripping. Um, maybe it's just that Jesus, we're finding out that he's not the kind of king we thought he was. And that's really... And we could feel, we can hide that, we, especially in church. Unfortunately, churches aren't often a, play, a place where um, people are doubting, can feel welcomed, and welcome to express their doubts and wrestle through them. But that's what we see here, and this is, I want, this is why I want this to be a balm to you this morning, is that Jesus welcomes that. He welcomes faith, but faith that hasn't wrestled with true doubt and worked through problems of the heart and of the head is, is not real faith, is it? And so, um, we find this morning in John, excuse me, John, John is involved here, John the Baptist, but it's in Luke seven verses 18 through 35. That's our text in the second week of Advent. Um, Luke seven, 18 through 35. And what we find here is that John's toward John the Baptist is, he's not beginning his ministry with the baptism. He's moved on to, uh, a place where his followers, most of his followers have left him. He's in prison at this point. And Jesus, his ministry is in full swing. John, his whole, his whole point was to prepare the way for Jesus. And now Jesus, he's got the crowds and his ministry is in full swing. And, and John is locked up in prison and most of his followers have left probably and gone over to Jesus and to other places. And, you know, when, when John, proclaimed the ministry of Jesus, he proclaimed it truly, but there's no way he saw it with 20-20 vision. There's no way he saw it fully, just like the prophets of old. They they proclaimed things that were absolutely true if they were in Scripture, if they were written down in Scripture, but there was so much that they probably didn't understand, that they didn't see clearly like like we see because we're on the other side of Jesus, his, his advent, his coming, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his imminent return. We're not on the other side of the imminent return, but on everything else. We can see it. It's been written down for us. We can study it. We can believe it. We can contemplate it. We can live into it. John didn't have, the prophets of old didn't have that advantage, and John didn't either. He knew Jesus personally, but the way that he would speak about Jesus' ministry, if you remember Luke 3, uh, man, the, the fire's coming. He's going to, essentially, he's, he's a king in the line of David. How did David treat Israel's enemies and God's enemies? He crushed them. He literally killed them. There was physical conquest over Israel's enemies through through David's reign. And and Jesus is in the line of David. And he's a greater king. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron. That's a prophecy about him in Psalm 2 and elsewhere. He's going to break his enemies 
like a pot, like a metal mace breaks, like a metal rod breaks a clay pot, just shatters them. He's going to shatter all opposition. He's going to bring fire into the threshing floor and he's going to burn up everyone opposed to him. I mean, this is a fierce king and this is all true of Jesus, but not in the way John thought. He, he was probably thinking more of that Jesus is going to decimate the Romans. He's going to throw off the geopolitical yoke um, that's over Israel's shoulders. And he's going to give her geopolitical freedom and liberty once again. And he's going to sit on a literal throne and he's going to reign in a way that made David look puny. And what Jesus does instead is he comes to be crucified. He ends up being crucified by his enemies. What? What? And John obviously can't see that yet, but that's what the ministry of Jesus is leading to. And that's what his mission is. And it surprised everyone. And, and um, so John sends the way that this text opens in Luke seven, verse 18 is John. He sees Jesus. Um, he sees Jesus in his healing ministry and in his ministry of compassion and spending time with the poor and with sinners. And in particular, in Luke seven, it says that Jesus healed a centur a Roman soldier, uh, his servant on the brink of death. He, Jesus heals this servant. And then he raises, uh, the only son of this poor widow in the village of Nain in the hill country. He raises this son from the dead. And John sees these two things and all the things that like them that are happening. And because of these things in particular, he sends a question through his messengers. Are you the one or should we expect another? Did I, in other words, did I get this wrong? Are you not the Messiah? And there's a sense in which Jesus could have crushed John for this. You know, man, you're my cousin. The whole point of your existence from before you were born, when you were in the womb, was to testify to the fact that I'm the king. And now you're questioning that? How dare you? And we may think that if we have doubts that are similar because of pain points in our life or because he just doesn't seem like the king, uh, like, he's, like he's doing the things that we wanted him to do or like the king that we expected, or our life isn't turning out the way that we thought, we may think we may be afraid to bring those doubts to God and those questions and those wrestlings and even that anger. But Jesus doesn't respond like that to John. He gives him proof. He says, look, I'm, whenever Jesus gives proof of his Messiahship, of who he is, he always uses the word. He goes back to uh, Isaiah 61 and he says, look, exactly what Isaiah said. The, the Messiah is going to do. He's going to open blind eyes. He's going to unstop deaf ears. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to preach good news to the poor. He's going to set the prisoner free. And he's going to restore the broken. He's going to, there are those that are shattered apart, the brokenhearted. But the, the Hebrew, I think, really just means their, their hearts are shattered, whether through grief through pain, through suffering, through a loss of hope, and he's going to bind up. He's going to restore their hearts. And then he's going to restore the waste places. He's going to be a God. He's going to be a king with a compassionate touch, with power, but not power to decimate, but power to heal. And so he takes John back to the scriptures. In Luke, in Luke 4, we see that that's how Jesus announces his ministry with that text. But he returns to that text. He says, look, Tell John that this is what I'm doing. I'm fulfilling the scripture in the way that I'm ministering. And this is what my ministry looks like. And so Jesus is, he's comfort. 
he doesn't blast John. He takes him back to the scriptures and he writes our understanding of who he is by taking us back to the word. Not our circumstances. Not our mis our perceptions or misperceptions of who he is, but based on our what we our expected level of comfort or whatever, but but back to the word. Who does the word say I am? Because he is the word and he fulfills it perfectly. And so that's that's what he does with John. It's what it's what he does with us. And we ought to be letting the word of God constantly correct our idolatry and our misperceptions of who Jesus is, unless we miss him. And so that's what he does with John. Um, and he doesn't crush him. He doesn't shame him. He says, tell him that I'm doing these things. Um, and that's a word of hope. And, you know, John ends up, he's like, man, if, if you're the king, shouldn't I be out of it? Shouldn't you spring me out of this prison? Like, no, actually, because because Jesus is king, a lot of times what that looks like for us is suffering and death. And that's what it looked like for Jesus. Do we think we're greater than our master? Like, no, but it means it means a new creation in us now and then coming one day. And he's he's going to do away with all all pain and all sin and all evil. And he's going to make all things new. And he starts that now, but he's going to finish it. And so. Our hope isn't. Our hope is beyond the resurrection. It's beyond death. Um, it's not in this life only. And if it is in this life only, we're extremely misdirected and bereft of hope. And of all people, like Paul says, to be to be the most pitied. So John isn't sprung from prison, and he ends up after this having his head cut off. And even Jesus mourns that, but Jesus is headed to the, in the same direction. Because his work of salvation and kingship is going to involve taking the blow for us in our place. And um, so he's not the kind of king that, that John was expecting. And, and you know, he does this, this amazing, um, again, it's a work of tenderness and compassion. After John's messengers leave, John is set up in the eyes of the public perhaps to, to have a very low place. Okay, look, he's in prison now. He's lost his followers. He was supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah, and now he's even questioning that and wondering his confidence is shot. He's wondering if he got it wrong. And so when when Jesus sends John's messengers back with this message, you know, he 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 speaks this word to the crowds that bolsters John's reputation in their eyes. He says, oh, by the way, what, you think that just because John's a true prophet, he's going to, you think he should be having it easy? You think, no, those people that have it easier in king's palaces, they wear fine clothing. And no, John's, John's been out in the desert from the start. He's been eating locusts. He's a wild man. And now he's locked up in prison. But I'm telling you, um, so if you, there's a sense in which he's saying, like, I, I'm that way too. God's kingdom is never what you expect. And often it means rigor and it means pain and it means privation. If we follow Jesus, it means carrying a cross. Um, it doesn't mean a life of comfort. It means being rejected by people just like he was. So we ought to expect that. Expect trouble, Jesus says. But um, so I'm like that. John's like that. Um, it's a mark of and the prophets were like that. It's a mark of being a follower of God that you that you live in this way. So that we really need to let that check, check us in our lifestyle and check whether or not we're really following Jesus. I'm not saying rich people can't follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we've come in America to 
to have this sort of idol of this health, wealth, gospel. If we follow God, he's going to give us our wishes. That's freaking heresy. And so out of line with what Jesus came to call us to. Um, and, and so he says, you know, there's no one greater that's born, been born of women than John. He's the greatest of those born of women, which is an amazing thing to say. He just really elevates the um, John in the eyes of his, his, you know, his cousin, John, in the eyes of the public there. And says He's being faithful. Don't think that because he's locked up in prison about to be beheaded, he's been unfaithful. Not at all. There's a sense in which this is a mark of God's favor. Um, that he's being rejected by the world because he's preached the truth and prepared the way for me. And I'm headed the same way, Jesus basically says. But for those that have ears to hear, but he finishes by saying, um, there's a second part to that. He says, you know, of, of those born of women, there's no one greater than John, which is amazing. But then he follows that by saying, but I truly, I tell you, um, that he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, what does that mean? That also is an amazing statement. It's even more amazing. And what he's saying here, I think, is he's contrasting the two births. He's saying, John, of those born of women, which is all of us, right? John's the greatest of the old order. But there's a new order coming that I'm bringing. And it's an order, not of those born of women, and I'm taking you back to John's gospel, not John the Baptist, but the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 where John talks about this new birth. He says, not, you know, the only way into the kingdom is not, is not to be born a first time, which we all are. We're born in sin. We're born opposed to God. We're born dead on arrival. We need a second birth. We need not to be born of women, but to be born of God. Not to be born of the flesh, but to be born of the spirit. Not to be born of works, but to be born of faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who's come to lay his life down for us and to take it up again. That alone, and the, the one who is least in that kingdom is greater than John. He's born a second time. He's born of the Son, making him a son. Born of the Spirit, brought into the kingdom through the Son, now a son of the Father. And we have such a great status through the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus that even the one who is the very least and the very last in that kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And that's the word of hope that that John that Jesus gives sort of cryptically here to to the people that are to the bystanders and to his followers. And so it's a very tender response, uh, but it's a warning too. He says, "Blessed is he who is not offended by me." And so I think that you know he then goes on to just talk about. <laughs> just how people can be offended by him and how those, those in his, those that are around him at the time were offended by him. He's like, look, you, you're never satisfied basically. Like you're always offended by something about me, by my person or message in some way. And he goes on to say like, look, John, he's lived this ascetic life. Um, he's lived out in the desert and he's called people to repentance. And you say, Oh, he's, he's too harsh. He's too harsh. He has a demon. But then you call me. I, I'm hanging out with sinners. I'm uh, I'm at parties where the people are welcoming sinners, befriending the poor. And you call me a drunkard and a uh, 
a drunkard and a glutton. And so John is living too strictly and I'm living too loosely. Like you're never satisfied. And I, that doesn't relate to us a lot. We can't really relate to that too much, but I think he's saying sort of put it in to apply it to our, our society. Like I have neighbors, I have people all around me. You see it. We all see it in the, in our culture today that people say, Oh, that, you know, the exactions, the, the requirements of Christianity, the Christian disciplines and following Christ and realizing that it's all, it's all his, he's the King and our lives are now forfeit. Our lives are now his, and we are his servants and slaves. And, and, uh, it's not, it's not my life anymore. It's been purchased at a price. I'm his. And so, um, he's called me to, to carry a cross and to die daily and to follow him. And, and, uh, and I'm no longer in charge like that. Those calls are too, they're too exacting. They're too high. They're too rigorous. Um, I, I want my freedoms. I want to live how I want to live. We hear that a bunch. It might not be put exactly that way, but there's that spirit. And then we hear too, hey, wait, grace, like you can't do anything to come into the kingdom, but just trust in him. He's done everything for us. Um, we hear that from sort of religious people like, no, no, there's nothing that we can do. Like he's done it all. Just trust in him and be saved. He forget, cleanses us of all sins and gives us new life. Like what? He, he's come to do what we cannot do for ourselves. We can't contribute anything. We just get in the way, like just believe on him and be saved. That's too easy. I have to do something. No, that's too. So in one sense, in the world says that's too hard. In the other sense, the religious people say that's too easy. And Jesus is saying, you know, you're, you're always finding a reason to reject me because both of those are rejections of Jesus. By the way, the irreligious objection and the religious objection, they're both objections to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, blessed is he who's not offended by me. You receive me as I've actually come for who I actually am and who I actually am is I've come to make all things new and I've come to do for you what you can't do for yourselves. And I've come to heal a broken world, to heat, to, to bind broken hearts, to heal broken limbs, to restore creation. And I've begun that work and I'm going to finish it. Um, but it's the poor and the hurting that are attracted to that message and, and those that know that they need a savior. And um, those that receive Jesus on his own terms, not on who they, not a Jesus of their making, but on the real Jesus. And so rather than finding a way, a defeater for Jesus and finding a way to not follow him and to be offended by him, look on him, investigate him, press into him, see who he really claims to be and believe on him and follow him and be saved and, and, and surrender, bow the knee. Uh, blessed are those who do that and who hide in him by faith. And so that's, that's really what he leaves, um, these folks with. It's what, it's what I'll leave you with today. Um, God bless you and Merry Christmas. I pray that this is a season unlike any other of coming to terms with the Jesus who actually came to save us, uh, and no longer being offended by that Jesus, but being welcomed and received and saved by him. God bless you. Merry Christmas.